Good morning. How's everyone doing? Oh, this, I'm going to have to, hold on. I get very precise at where this stuff goes. This will work. All right, guys, how's it going? How's everyone doing this morning? Awesome. Glad to hear it. Uh, if you've not yet met me, my name is Jeff. My amazing wife, Jessica, and I are the youth pastors here at Grace, and I get the privilege of serving on the teaching team. So I get to bring a message about once a month, uh, and I'm excited to be taking you guys from Numbers 22 through Numbers 36 and concluding our Are We There Yet series. Um, all right, let's move this over here a little bit. Perfect. Awesome. Well, before we dive in, um, I want to go ahead and open up in prayer um, because I've found that my words fall really flat, but the word of God stands tall. So I'm going to go ahead and lean on him today. Uh, So if you would, join me in prayer. Father God, I thank you so much for this day, Lord. I thank you for everything you do for us and you do through us. I pray that you'd be with each and every person here, God, that you would speak to them. Your Holy Spirit is the only one who changes lives, God. I I just pray for your Holy Spirit to be here in this place, God, for you to be in the midst, that you would go, you would break down barriers, God, that you would would open our ears and open our hearts to you today, Lord. And God, I pray that you speak through me. I know that Jeff's words, they fall short, Lord, but your word lasts forever. And and I just pray that you'd be here in this place, God, that you would speak through me um, and that you you would go out and change lives today, Lord. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are going to be concluding our series on numbers today, and, and we're going to kind of uh, fly over and, and, and do a, a, a thousand-foot view of this. So what I encourage you guys to do, I'm going to give you a little bit of homework, okay? I'm used to working with teenagers. I want you guys to do a little homework. After you hear today's message, go home and read uh, the rest of the numbers, numbers 22 through 36, and see what jumps out at you. Um, it's, a, it's a really great study. Um, for sake of time, though, I'm not going to be able to go through all of it, but I have a cool video at the end that I, I just love. I've watched it like three times, and the last time it, uh, it made me a little emotional. So uh, I want to share that one with you. It's, it's good. Um, with that said, I'm going to start off by telling a story that I never thought I would tell on stage, but you know what? They gave me a microphone, and here I am. So let's have fun with it. All right? Also, am I in the monitors? Because it's... Okay, got you. You guys got this. Um, so I'm going to tell you a story. Um, I was going to kind of give the ending at the beginning, but we'll save that for the end. That's where endings naturally go. Um, so, um, the very first sport I ever played, I grew up, you know, you might not know it now, but I grew up an athlete and the very first sport that I ever competitively played, uh, was wrestling. I got involved in wrestling when I was eight years old, wrestled all the way up through high school. Um, and not like the kind you see on TV. Um, it was actually like Olympic wrestling with a, a circle and, it's quite different, um, but uh, that's the kind of wrestling I was into. Now, I will say, I'm an old-school wrestling fan, okay? Like, I'm from the Hulk Hogan, Jake the Snake, Dudley Boy days, all right? Yeah. I mean, I grew up with that, that old, old-school wrestling where, where they actually had blood and stuff, you know. Anyway, not the point. Um, I, I grew up with that kind of wrestling, and so I grew up loving that wrestling, but also loving the sport of, like, Olympic-style wrestling, um, and, and I grew up doing this, and, and I think I was like 12 or 13, um, and there, we had the Tennessee State Tournament here at, at CCHS, and, and at least in the time period that I wrestled, that was the only one that was actually here in Cross, so there, most of the time we had to go to Mount Juliet or Knoxville to other places to go to the, ten, to the state tournaments, and we had the one here, and now this was a big deal. Um, it was the state tournament, the state AAU wrestling tournament, um, and they had like, you know, the, the radio stations were here. They had, you know, food. They actually brought in a professional wrestler 
Um, some of you might know him as the Nature Boy, Ric Flair, okay? So, some old school wrestling, okay? Yeah, so uh, he, was, he was actually there, and, and so this is where the story begins, all right? Because I was, um, I was in, I was, I had a match, and, and I, to be honest with you, I don't remember if I won or lost the match. Probably won, you know, but anyway. <laughs> um, I, I remember coming out of the match in just enough time to see out the front my dad getting loaded into the back of a police car. So that really uh, made, made it an interesting day. So let me explain what exactly happened, at least from my dad's point of view. I don't know anyone else's. Um, and this is my dad's story. Until the day he died, this is what he stuck to. Now, I will, I will say, I'm going to go and throw it out there. My dad may or may not have had just a little bit to drink this day. So just keep that in mind as I tell you the rest of the story. Evidently, my dad had walked up to Mr. Flair and, and asked for an autograph. And my dad said he basically ignored him and was flirting with girls. And so my dad put the hat down, and he's like, will you sign this? It's for my son. And he said something along the lines of, forget your son, except dad said he didn't say forget. And, and this is, again, what my dad heard. And so my dad then proceeds to try to fight Ric Flair <laughs> on my behalf. Now, I want to go ahead and, 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 and let you guys know, my dad is not my biological father, but he's been in my life since I was six weeks old, so that's my dad. But he was about yay tall, okay? <laughs> he's, a little, he's a little stocky dude, but he was about this big, um, a little mouse. And, and, uh, but he, this was his story, every gathering, he talked about how Ric Flair ran from him. It was, it was good, good times, good stuff. I mean, I wasn't there, so I'm just going to believe his side of it, but uh, that, that's what happened. It was incredibly memorable, and, and I love that story. Like, yeah, it was weird at the time. I got out of my match. Dad's being arrested, tried to beat up Ric Flair. That's cool. Um, but really, like, who else gets to share that story? Who says that's, it? that's part of your life? Now, I, I will say this. I say that because I wanted to talk about my dad for a minute. Uh, my dad was crazy. Like, I will just, I'll be there. He was like a, a drilling junkie to the fullest. Um, but I, I knew one thing, that he was always there for me, right? And, and, and I hope that everyone here has someone like that in your life that, and, and I know even now I have tons of people that, that they've always got my back, no matter what happens, no matter what we're going through, not even if I'm wrong, they still got my back, and they're like fighting for me, and I'm like, no, I know I'm wrong, I know I messed up. And they're like, no, you're, and I'm like, but that's how my dad was, like he always had my back. Now he'd tell me when I did something stupid too, but he, otherwise he always had my back and he was always there to protect me and stand up. And that's what happened in that situation. Whether he misheard or heard correctly what was said, he was standing up for me. And that's something that I always knew. Like, yeah, he was the crazy one who got arrested for trying to beat up a professional wrestler, but he was also the crazy one who jumped off a ledge to grab a copperhead by the tail because it was getting too close to his son. He, he was also the crazy one who, who soaked his broken leg in a kiddie pool so that he could cut his cast off himself because he knew our family couldn't survive for him to be off work any longer. He was, even the, he was also the crazy one that woke up every morning before the crack of dawn to go out and do hard labor long after his body told him he couldn't do it any longer. See, he was, he was that crazy one who, I remember growing up, went out doing things, like did the hard things for our family that I still don't know the, how he had that much strength. I remember... Uh, and this may be a little too, too personal, but I remember he had to take a few of our pets out um, who were dying and, and do what had to be done. And I remember him coming in covered in dirt from where he had dug a hole with tears running down his face. And that's just strength I don't fully understand. 
but that strength that I strive to have with my children. I, 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 that's, I, I get all of my, all of my, my parenting ability, my, my fatherly advice comes from my dad, and my dad had some wild fatherly advice. I told you some of the good stuff. There was a lot of crazy stuff he said too, but, but I, I get all that from my dad, and I strive to be that. I strive to be a protector, a provider, to watch out for, to always have their back, to let them know that there's always someone that they can come and talk to and be there for. And, and that's what the love of a father looks like. A love of a father is a protective, secure love that you are there and you are present. And I realize that as I'm saying this, not everyone knows that love. And that's terrible. And I, and I do pray that Everyone who doesn't know that love, because I know we have students and stuff that we talk to all the time, that they don't have that same experience, is I just pray that they had someone in their life that was able to give that to them, to give them a level of security where they didn't have to live in fear. They didn't have to live without thinking that someone was watching out for them and protecting them. And this doesn't have to be a biological parent. Again, my dad was yay big. He wasn't my biological father, but he was my dad. He was my dad my entire life, and he was that for me. But even those of us who don't know that earthly father, we have a heavenly father that promises the same thing. A heavenly father that goes above and beyond, that says he is always there. He will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. He's always present. He's always protective. He's always in this midst. His hand is always on you. He loves you. He loves you, that you have a heavenly father who is always there and always present. And we're going to get to see the love of a heavenly father as we walk our way through numbers today. We're going to get to see the love, the hand, and the grace of a heavenly father who loves his children, who cares for his children, and who protects his children. So today we're going to be focusing uh, in on Numbers 22. Um, and in Numbers 22, we see a, a really interesting uh, story of what happens. Um, and so we're going to be looking at a gentleman by the name of Balaam. Uh, real quick, let's give a recap on where we're at uh, in the book of Numbers. Now, the book of Numbers is called Numbers because they, they take so many censuses. Censuses? Censuses? What's the plural form of census? Anyway, they take multiple censuses, all right? And that's why we call it the book of Numbers. I did learn this week that in the Hebrew, it was called In the Wilderness, which I think is actually a, a series title we thought of for this series and didn't go with. But it is essentially the story of the Israelites walking their way through the wilderness, heading toward the promised land. Now, as we've done this, we've got to journey alongside them, and we've got to see you know, the good things that happen. We've also got to see some of the times they've messed up, and, and some of the times when they've messed up, they've, they've received punishments from God. And that's something else, a loving father doesn't just give their children everything they want. That's how you raise an adult that doesn't know how to function. A loving father knows that there is a, a, a line between giving and rewarding and punishment and discipline. There has to be discipline in the household because at the end of the day, we're not just trying to raise happy kids. We want them to be happy, but we also want to raise functional adults so that when they become adults, they actually know how to live life correctly. And, and in doing that, there also has to be a level of discipline and a level of, of punishment that takes place. And, and we see this with God, that whenever um, they lose faith and they no longer trust in God, he tells them, basically to the older generation, those who had, had walked out of Egypt, that you will not step foot in the promised land. 
We see that 12 spies went in and, and scoped out the promised land. Ten of them came back with a bad report and said, there are giants in the land. We can't take this land. This land is not for us. It, it, they, they are too strong. And the people believed them. You see, they walked by sight and not by faith. Because we have two other spies that came back, and what did they go in? They didn't go in and, and look at the problem. They went in and looked at the promise. And, and so they went in and they said, the promise was correct. This land is flowing with milk and honey. This land is perfect. There are some giants, but they are nothing to God. You see, they went in where others were looking at the problem. They were looking at the promise. You see, we have that same choice today. We can look at the problem or we can look at the promise. We, we can look at our life and we can focus on the problems we have because there is problems. Even for the Christian, there is problems. Or we can look at the promise the promise in Romans 8, 28, God says that he will work all things together for the good of those who love him, who, call, who have been called according to his purpose. Not all things will be good, but all things will be worked together for good. That is the promise of God. It may not seem good at the moment, but it will be worked together. We can focus on the problem or we can focus on the promise. And there's a difference. One of them will lead us to, to darkness and depression and anxiety. The other will lead us to freedom and, and a willingness to follow God despite the problem. See, we can focus on the problem, we can focus on the promise. And we had two spies that came out and they focused on the promise of God. I think I have this up here. Oh, hold up. We'll get up to speed in just a second. There we go. This, this message is titled, Walking in Amazing Grace. Let's carry on. Look at the promise. Not the promise. I always forget to say the title part. I need to put it in my notes or something. Anyway, they, they, they looked at the promise and not at the problem. You see, we, we had that same decision to make every day. Problems will arise. There will be struggles at work. There will be struggles in marriage. There will be struggles in parenthood. There will be problems, but there will also be promise. There will be health problems. There will be financial problems. There will be political problems. And we can focus on the problem, and we can be depressed, and we can be anxious, and we can be broken, and we can be led to darkness, led into sin and into temptation. Because when we focus on the problem, we are looking for a solution outside of God. And that will lead us into sin and temptation and darkness. Or we can focus on the promise that all things will work together for the good of those who love him and call according to the purpose. You see, that's not a problem when I know the promise. You see, I, 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 don't, I don't think the enemy's winning when I realize God has already made the promise. He will crush the head of the enemy under his foot. That is the promise. The enemy may look like he's leading, but that is de deception at its best. Because God has already claimed the throne. He's already claimed the victory. That is the promise of God. Don't focus on the problem. Focus on the promise. The promise of God. You see, those two spies who came back, they came back in faith. And, and one was Joshua, one was Caleb. And Joshua would be the successor to Moses. He would be the one who leads the, the, the children of the, the escapees from Egypt into the promised land. And it was because of his faith in God. He didn't focus on the problem. He focused on the promise. And, and the, the, some more homework, because why not? As you go out this week, when you're focused on the problem, because it'll happen. Things will happen. That bill don't look like it's going to get paid. My kid's acting stupid. It happens. Focus on the promise. When you get the bad report from the doctor, focus on the promise. When, when things don't seem like they're working out right, focus on the promise. When, when, when emotions are on, on high and the battle in front of you seems too great for you to be able to 
accomplish it when it seems like you're buried in the midst of darkness. Focus on the promise. Focus on the God that you serve. The, the, the God who, who slays giants. The God who closes the mouths of lions. The God who splits the seas, who feeds the multitudes, who opens deaf ears, who makes blind eyes see. The God who raises the dead to life. There is no problem that we face on this world too great for our God. Because he is greater than all things. And if we would focus not on our problems but on his promises we would realize that he is still in control and he is still in the midst and he will overcome all things. So focus on the promise. All right, I think we're supposed to be talking about Balaam or something. Hold on. Yes, yeah, so where we are in, Gen- or in, in Numbers, in, in 22, I'll figure out where we're at, guys. It, where we're at in Numbers is uh, the Israelites are making their way um, through the wilderness, and they come up basically on, on the border of the promised land, and they're, they're right beside a place called Moab. Now, as, um, as they, they come up to Moab, the king of Moab knows they are approaching. This king's name is Balak, and he immediately gets fearful when they start to come close because he knows their track record. He knows that they have escaped Egypt and slayed, you know, more God than them, but slayed most of the Egyptian army, the most powerful force in the world. And they've came and they have destroyed and conquered city after city after city as they work their way through the wilderness. And so when they approach the gates of Moab, he gets afraid. Now, what's funny to me is that we read over in Deuteronomy that God actually instructs the Israelites to not attack Moab, that they are, they are, they are children of uh, of Ishmael, and he had, he had said, this is their place. So it amazes me that he spends all this time worried and anxious about something that will never come to pass. And we do the same thing. We spend so much time worried and anxious about tomorrow when we're living the consequences of a reality that will never come, rather than living in the day and living in the promise of God. God says, do not be anxious for anything, for tomorrow has enough problems of its own. Focus on today. You see, Balak was afraid of something that would never come to pass. And what he did in his fear is he knew that he could not defeat Israel physically, and so he wanted to defeat them spiritually. And so he called a prophet uh, for hire. I like to call him a prophet for profit. I thought that was good. All right. He called a prophet for hire named Balaam. And he says, hey, Balaam, I want you to curse these people. And Balaam goes and prays to God, and God says, you can't curse them. Which is funny because in Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abraham. He says to him, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. And so what ends up happening is there's a, there's a cool moment where Balaam's donkey talks to him. I'm telling you, go read it. That's just a, to get you guys to go read it. He talks to his donkey. His donkey talks back, just saying it's scripture. Um, and, and he goes and he, he goes with Balak, and Balak takes him to three different locations where he overlooks the children of Israel, and when he goes up to, to pray a curse over them, he can only pray a blessing. He can only bless them. He's been hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to come and curse him, but every time he gets up, he prays a blessing over them. And, and no matter... This is what I was going to. No matter the king's bribes or threats of violence, Balaam blesses Israel over and over. Over and over, he climbs up on the mountaintop and he prays a blessing over them. Now, these blessings, uh, these blessings, a lot of them kind of reiterate the promises God has already made to Israel. Uh, some of the blessings are talking about 
how, um, are talking about how they will be innumerable, how they will conquer every city. But there's one blessing in particular that I want us to look at. It's his final blessing. Uh, when he comes up and he prays a, a blessing over them, I think I have it up here. Yes, yes, there it is. He, he prays this. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He prophesies about God coming to earth. But not now. He's not near, but a star will come out of Jacob. He prophesies about the coming king of Israel. He prophesies about Jesus. Even Balaam, a pagan prophet, knows Jesus. God gives him right there a revelation of Jesus coming. That he would be this described king that would come a star out of Jacob. And what's really interesting um, is, you, you know, the, the wise men, they follow the, the star that's in the sky. The, the star out, out of Jacob is explained here. What's really interesting is most scholars believe those wise men come from around the same location that Balaam was located. And so as they came through, it was, um, they came from that same location coming to Jesus. I just think that's incredible. Even, even this prophet prophesies of the coming of Jesus. Now, what else is incredible to me is if you imagine the situation right now, you have the children of Israel down in the fields grumbling, complaining, griping, murmuring about all the things they don't have and all the things they want and how things would be better if and, and all this is going on. They're down there griping and complaining, but God is up on the mountaintop fighting a battle they had no idea they were in. You see, that's one of the things. A lot of times we feel like God is silent. We feel like our prayers are just being lifted to, to empty ceilings, hitting empty walls. Like God's not answering the way we expect him to. God's not doing anything. We don't know the battles that God is fighting on our behalf that we never even knew was there. You see, God is at work even when we don't know it, even when we don't feel it. I think some reason we have this thought of God and how God's presence is tied to our feelings. But see, God is there. His promise says that he is there always. He will never leave you nor will he forsake you. It's not dependent on your feelings. It's dependent on his presence, and his presence is always with you. And I think that's incredible that he is up there fighting on their behalf while they're grumbling and complaining. And this is, this is where I got the fatherly love thought at. Because that's exactly what a father does. My dad was fighting Ric Flair, <laughs> and I had no idea. <laughs> is a, a, a father is protective. He watches out. He's there. And this is exactly what God does. He sees someone trying to bestow a curse on his children, and he steps in. And he says, you will not hurt my children because I will protect them because I am a loving father. He loved them. He fought for them. He, he, he was there in their midst. Now, the, the rest of Numbers, the rest where we're going to kind of finish out today, uh, we'll see in the next chapter that there is a census that takes place 
uh, of the, the new generation. And so um, at this point, it is all the, the children of those who left Egypt. Um, and there is a census taken of them. And if I, I recall correctly, it's 600, a little over 600,000 fighting men and women. And there's 24,000 Levites. Um, and then after that, we're going to see um, the grace of God in action as they go and they, they, they fight battle after battle and, and God steps in and, and God is there and God gives them victory after victory as they lead them into the promised land and there are, there are laws that come and laws that take place and, and, and this is where I want you guys to jump in and, and study and, and really dive into this because there's a lot to take from it. Um, but what I find incredible is that they're able to march in to the promised land and I ask myself the question, did they deserve it? Well, no. But did they receive it? Yes. That's grace. That's grace. And that's one thing we've seen over and over is grace. Even in our study of, of the, the first four books of Moses, as we walked our way through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and now uh, Numbers, we, we see God's grace on display. Constantly God's love and God's grace it is there. He, he loves them. He fights for them. Did they deserve it? No. Are they perfect? No. But God is there and he gives. I, I read, a, I read a, a little snippet uh, this week about a, a famous painter in the 1800s, uh, Sir, what was his name? Sir Edwin Landseer, yes. Sir Edwin Landseer, just like I had thought. Uh, he was a, a prodigy of prodigies. He's an excellent painter. He was, you know, hired by the, 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 the queen and king of Israel, or queen and king of England to, to paint things. Got my Bible brain on. Um, and, and he was just, he was an incredible painter. And, and there's a story about how he was visiting some, some of his family in Scotland, and they had evidently some sort of mansion. And there was uh, soda water. I have no idea what that even is, but there was soda water spilled on the wall, and it left this real nasty-looking stain. Um, and while the family was out, uh, Edwin went over to it and to brought out his charcoal, uh, charcoal pencils and starts to draw and sketch around um, that nasty stain. And, and he, he works on it for hours. And, and when the family comes back, where there was once a nasty stain, there is now a flowing waterfall with trees and, and animals all around it. He had taken something that was broken and he made it beautiful. See, what's incredible is that's what God does with his children, and that's grace, is that we are broken. The gospel starts, sometimes I think we, we misrepresent the gospel because the, the gospel starts with our sin. It starts because we are broken. The reason we need a savior is because we are so messed up. You see, we are like a stain on a wall. We are broken. We are dirty. We've messed up. We've made mistakes. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. We are due death coming our way. But grace is though we did not deserve it. Christ came and he died for us. He made a way for us to be saved by his grace. You see, God takes broken things and he makes them beautiful. He, he takes dead things and brings them to life by his grace. Grace is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, real quick, I, wanna, I want us to watch a video, and then I'm planning to come back up and, and close us out. But I want us to watch a video that I think does a really, really good job of summarizing everything we've learned in our study of numbers. Um, and then I would like to come back and close us out. The book of Numbers opens with God speaking to Moses. 
in the wilderness. And though it does begin with a census in which God has Moses count the number of men who would go into Canaan on the offensive, numbers is not about figures and digits. It's about Israel in the wilderness and their unwillingness to follow God and his commandments. The main place we see this is when God sends Israel to travel to the land of promise, to drive out the inhabitants and live with his presence in the place pledged to Abraham back in Genesis. So upon arrival at the border of Canaan, God told Moses to send men to spy out the land to which he was soon to take them. Here they were, God's chosen civilization, former slaves saved from Egypt's domination on the cusp of entering the promise God had made to generation after generation. But something would soon change them. The spies returned and reported that the inhabitants were too strong. They were like giants. No matter who their God was, Israel could never triumph. And so the people disobeyed. They would not enter. They would not be compliant. They would not trust God or follow his guidance. And so God promised a punishment. These people would not receive the land of promise, but would die outside it in the wilderness. All those who witnessed God's miraculous works and yet refused to trust him again and again, none of them would enter into this promised land. But Moses interceded, and God heard his cry. So God made a distinction. The younger generation would still enter the land, but everyone counted in the older generation would die. And what we find in the rest of Numbers is that the older generation earns this sentence. For what happened outside Canaan was not a one-time instance. Instead, Numbers shows us that disobedience was the nature of their existence. In fact, as we trace this people through the wilderness, we see a pattern take shape. We start to notice a cycle. God gives a law or command. Then the people rebel and disobey. So God brings a deathly punishment. But through Moses, intercession is made. Then it all gets replayed. In order to regroup, in order to regulate, God gives new commands and re-emphasizes the old ones he gave, only to see the people rebel again, fall under punishment, and need to be saved. Whether it was when God gave a commandment about the high priest, only to see a rebellion form when others sought to lead. So God sent a devastating plague, which was only stopped when intercession was made. Or when God doubled down with new commands about the priests and their roles, only to see the people rebel again against the commands and authorities he had chose. So God sent fiery serpents to kill those in this rebellion, which was also stopped only when God provided a way of intercession. This is the cycle in Numbers. This is its constant procession. Commands, disobedience, punishment, and intercession. And when we see this cycle, it's easy to start asking questions. 
Why do they keep disobeying? Why don't they learn their lesson? Why won't they change? Why do they keep committing transgression after transgression? And it's because this is who we are as humans. This is the result of sin's infection. And so the punishment God promised came for all of them. The entirety of the older generation, no matter the intercession, heard God's commandments, chose instead to sin against him, and died in the wilderness. But the story of Numbers is not just about Israel. It is about all of us. So when we, like the younger generation, look at all this disobedience and devastation, we need to see that we are in the exact same situation. We all participate in sin's cyclical operation. We all have disobeyed and face elimination. We therefore will die outside God's holy nation. Like Israel, we are stuck in this cycle. So what hope do we have to escape it? For even Moses eventually sinned. Even he had his moment of rejection and denial. And since he could not intercede for himself, he would not inherit the land or join the next generation in their survival. So if it wasn't Moses, who would come and make a way of escape from this cycle? Well, the book of Numbers answers in an unexpected style. God speaks through a pagan named Balaam and prophetically explains the whole hope of the Bible. God would not punish his people like they deserved. Instead, he would offer them a blessing when all they had earned was a curse. Through Balaam, God pointed to a king he would raise out of Israel, who would bring them into the land promised to his people. And the king who would perform this delivering miracle is none other than Jesus, the only one who could finally break sin's cycle. He would do so by being sinless, by not falling in to its cycle. And so the word of God became flesh and entered into our sinful mess. But where we disobeyed, he practiced true obedience so that he could enter into the place of our punishment and be our true intercessor, our new and better Moses. For only he was worthy, only he was meritorious. So when he voluntarily allowed our punishment to fall on him, instead of dying under it, he rose victorious. So now Jesus is the way out of the wilderness. He is the way in to God's presence. He obeyed where we couldn't have, died where we should have, so we might enter into the place we never could have. So when the number of your sins are so stacked against you that you feel stuck in its downward spiral, Remember that Jesus is interceding for you and working within you to once and for all break sins.
said in the video, just like the children of Israel, you and I, we fall short. We, we give up. We choose sin over God. We, we choose pleasure over servitude. We, we choose temporary over eternal. We choose our way over God's way. We, we do this every single day, but because we walk in the amazing grace of God, we are saved and we are made new by the blood of Jesus. He broke the cycle of sin by taking our sins on himself and paying the price. You see, I love to look at grace throughout scripture because we we see the incredible people in scripture and we think, wow, they're amazing. They're perfect. They're saints. And I just, I love the way Doug says it. If you want to see a saint. You know, I'm a saint, not because I'm perfect, but because he is. I'm a saint, not because I'm good or that I'm holy. It's because that Jesus is. It's because I'm covered in the blood of the one who is holy. It's not because I'm sinless. It's because the sinless one died on my behalf. That is why I am made new. Look in the scripture. We have David. He was a murderer and an adulterer. We have Samson who chose a woman over God. We have Gideon who was hiding. Abraham and Sarah laughed at God's promises. Jonah ran away. Paul killed Christians. Peter said, I never knew him. By our standards, these people are not... not, uh, They don't deserve our love and our acceptance, let alone the love and acceptance of a holy, perfect God. But when we look at scripture, we see grace. Grace played out. As God said, David is a man after his own heart. He said he restored Samson's strength and he destroyed the, the tower of the temple of Dagon. The 300 with Gideon defeated the 300,000. The promised son was born to Abraham and Sarah. The, the, the gospel was preached in Nineveh. Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church. Do not think that your past disqualifies you from the saving grace of Jesus. The fact is, you will never be a greater sinner than Jesus is a Savior. Your your past doesn't disqualify you, it qualifies you. Because Jesus came and he chose broken, messed up people, and he made them holy, and he made them new, and he put them, he gave them a mission and a purpose. He he came to broken people and he said, go and make disciples of all nations. No, 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 your past doesn't disqualify you. Your sin doesn't remove you from the grace of God. It gives you a, a reason and a purpose, and it gives you a mission after you find Jesus. He died on that cross. While you were still his enemy, he laid his life down for you. He knew your every sin. He knew your every mistake. He knew every time you would fall short, and he knew every single person that would deny him and curse him. And yet he laid his life down, and he died on their behalf. We are saved by the precious blood of Jesus. He broke the cycle of sin, not because we were so good, but because he is so good. That is the gospel message, that we are loved, redeemed, accepted. We are made holy by the blood of Jesus. And wherever you're at, whatever you're facing, whatever the season, whatever the difficulty, whatever the mountain is in front of you, God is still good, he is still holy, and he is still fighting on your behalf. You can follow him and lean into him and trust him. Don't focus on the problems. Focus on this promise. And his promise is that he will save you. If you would say with your mouth and believe in your heart that he is Lord, you will be saved today.
Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for everything you do for us and do through us. I thank you for your son, Jesus, who came and laid his life down so that we could be saved. I just pray that if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, God, that they would open their heart to you, that they would choose you, and they would follow you. God, that they would give you their life, not that there won't be problems, not that there won't be imperfections, but that your grace is sufficient to cover all. God, I just pray that you'd be with each and every person here, Lord. You know our problems, our struggles, what we're facing, the temptations, God. I just pray for your Holy Spirit to be here to give us strength in the midst of it. Lord, we love you and we trust you. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.